Our passage this afternoon comes from Exodus 33. We are in the middle of the golden calf episode. Uh, That covers chapters 32 through 34. And for the most part, it is an extended dialogue between Moses and the Lord. We see the Lord dealing with Israel and we see Moses interceding on Israel's behalf. Last week, we saw the Lord's mercy in that he relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. The question really that remains now is what next? Uh, Israel, as you know, is still in the the desert. Uh, Their life is in disarray. The Lord's judgment has come upon them in the form of a plague. So what next? Is there any hope for God's people when they have backslidden to this, this, these kinds of depths to, to such a degree as this when uh, they've turned away from the Lord in such obvious ways? What kind of future does Israel have? That's where we're headed today. Uh, turn your hearts with me as I read from Exodus chapter 33. Yahweh said to Moses, depart, Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For Yahweh had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses had entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and Yahweh would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found also favor in my sight." Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. 
Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Chapter 33 begins with good news. You have the command to depart. Go up. Go up from here to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel is issued another step in the fulfillment of the promise. And Moses must have sighed a sigh of relief when he heard the Lord say that. God's word had not fallen to the ground. To your offspring, I will give it. The Lord's blessing hadn't been lifted from his people. In fact, he gives them a promise of both guidance and deliverance. He says, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out all of these peoples that stand in your way of possessing the land. God is still going to work on Israel's behalf. They're going to come to possess this land that is flowing with milk and honey, something that they could only have dreamt of at this point in time. It is everything that you could possibly hope for and more until you get to the middle of verse 3. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And so you have a go up from here, and you have, but, uh, uh, but I will not go up among you, which is both a judgment and a grace. God in his mercy is protecting his people from himself. Intimacy between a holy God and a stiff-necked people would mean peril for them, which sets up the whole problem that we have in front of us this morning. Go up, but I will not go up. So what does this text have to teach us? Well, first, brothers and sisters, we see a right response to a disastrous word. 
And I want you to see the way that Israel responds to what God says here in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his garments or his ornaments. At first they recognized this pronouncement for what it was. It was a disastrous word. You can't overstate the the significance of that kind of evaluation. And just consider the way they had to weigh things in the balance in order to come to that kind of conclusion. On one end of the scale, they put everything that God had said. They had the promise that God would deliver them, that he would bless them with safe passage into the promised land. They had the angel. They had the the, the deliverance. They had the routing out of all of their enemies. They had the inheritance. They had the blessing. They had the the milk and the honey. All of that was in place. Their final destination hadn't changed. None of that was was, was in question. God was still going to be faithful to the word that he had promised to their forefathers. The issue at hand, on the other side of the scale, was where the Lord had said, but I will not go up with you. That's the rub. That's the disaster there's something more than a, than a plot of physical territory that is at stake here. There's something more than, than just the, the, the temporary abundance that this land has to offer that as at stake. Something more than the good life, so to speak, was at jeopardy, and the people knew it. And what did they know? Well, they, they understood that there is no good life apart from the presence of God. There is no good life. There is no blessing apart from God himself being with them, apart from the presence, the person of God abiding with them. When things were weighed in the balance, they came to see the the meaninglessness of, of prosperity and abundance and blessing and all of the rest apart from the presence of God going with them. And they had no desire for these gifts apart from the giver of every good and perfect gift. In a word, they wanted God. They wanted his nearness, his presence in their midst. They desired him more than they did what flowed out of his hand. I wonder whether you have come to see this in your own life. Whether you have done this kind of reckoning in your life. Whether you have thought about the pursuits that ruminate in your heart and mind and the things that you find yourself craving and desiring and the things that you long for and you have come to see that the good things of life, those, those blessings, even those common graces that the Lord bestows, those earthly delights cannot replace the absence of the Lord. He is what your soul so desperately needs. He is the one that alone can satisfy the desire of your heart. There are many people in this world who are content to possess the blessings of God, the gifts of God. They want even the forgiveness of God and eternal life and all of the rest, but they have no interest in possessing God himself. 
They want to escape eternal punishment. They want to say a prayer. They want to get their ticket punched. But they don't want a a relationship with God. They're not interested in reconciliation, relationship, nearness with the Lord. By God's grace, this was not the case at this moment with Israel. God began to do a work in their hearts, and they knew that all of the gifts of God, notwithstanding his absence, meant that this was a disastrous word. It was an absolutely disastrous word. And so what did they do? They mourned. They wept. There was contrition and grief over their sin. Brothers and sisters, do you know what it is to mourn over your sin? Do you know what it is to mourn over the separation that your sin results in? How do we know whether this was uh, the kind of worldly sorrow that the Bible speaks of or godly sorrow? The scriptures do uh, talk about a couple different kinds of sorrow as it relates to sin. One leads to death. Uh, The other, the Bible says, leads to salvation without regret. How do we know whether the Lord was truly at work in Israel's life here and that they had truly been humbled? Well, it says that no one put on his ornaments. They stripped themselves of their, their jewelry and their ornaments, those things made of silver and gold. And the ancient Near East, adorning yourselves with Ornaments was associated with celebration and happiness. It's just the same way uh, as is the case in our own culture, ladies. Uh, you, you go to a wedding and you go find your finest jewelry. That would have been entirely out of place in terms of, of a right response to this kind of occasion. This is why we see calls to repent in sackcloth and ashes. In the scriptures, it's an outward act intended to convey an inward state, an inward condition. Remember also that these are the same kinds of articles, these ornaments that were used in the construction of the golden calf. And so by taking them off, Israel is now openly renouncing their old ways. They're disassociating themselves from idolatrous practices. They're repenting. They had a change of mind about their relationship to that, their relationship to that sin. Their affections began, began to change, and so did their deeds. Their deeds began to, to follow. And there's a, there's a lesson here for us. Whenever the Lord begins to convict us of our sin, whenever the Lord begins to work in our hearts, repentance will require certain things of us. Repentance requires certain changes. It means abandoning those things that we at one point used to cherish those things that we hold near and dear to our hearts. It means forsaking whatever it is that we're accustomed to clinging to. It means abandoning those cheap substitutes that we've used in the place of God and that we've bowed down before, whatever we found ourselves running to. It means denying ungodly lusts. 
So if the Lord has been working in your life, if the Lord has been pricking your heart over some matter, I would exhort you today to think in particular terms about what repentance would look like. What repentance in particular terms might look like in a way that's akin to Israel here in this passage. No one put on their ornaments. They stayed away from what they had been running to and what they had bowed down to before. Consider what it would have signaled if Israel had refused to take their ornaments off. What would it have meant if they clung to their jewelry so inextricably tied to idolatry at this point of time? You would have had good cause to call into question their professed repentance. You would have had good cause to call into question the the mourning that they exhibited. But here, confession and professed repentance is followed by obedience. It's followed by deeds. And then you see a true seeking after God in verse 7. The idol mustn't just be taken down. God must receive his rightful place. Whereas previously they had sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, now they leave behind their corruption and what do they do? They purposefully set their heart and mind on the things of God, on the Lord himself. They sought the Lord. The Bible says that they worshipped. There was a new orientation to their life that no one could deny. It was visible. It was evident in their life. Jesus said in Matthew 3 and verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't rely on those external attachments. Don't look to that spiritual punch card. Don't look back in time to some prayer that you prayed sometime back when. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a turning point in Israel's lives. They bore fruit in keeping with repentance. It's also a point of encouragement for us in that it reminds us that there is no one who is so far gone, there's no one who is so wicked, so idolatrous, that the Lord cannot pierce their heart. That the Lord cannot get a hold of them and draw them back to himself. James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will be the lifter of your head. Now we come to verses 7 to 11, where Moses takes this tent and he pitches it outside the camp to meet with God. At first, this this section of the the narrative seems to interrupt the story. It feels almost a little bit out of place for a second, but it's a crucial piece of background information in that it sets the stage for the prayer of intercession that follows afterwards. This is 
before the tabernacle proper has been set up. That is still to come in chapters 35 to 40. At this point in time, Moses has just come down off the mountain. But in the meantime, you get this window into a tent of meeting, not the tent of meeting, but a tent of meeting. It's a sort of tent of meeting in nascent form, something that that gives you a window into what the Lord will be doing in the tabernacle as it is eventually constructed. But here you have this temporary meeting space between Moses and the Lord. And it's a very dramatic, uh, magisterial sort of uh, passage. All of the people rise up whenever Moses goes up and they stand at their door uh, until he would enter. The pillar of cloud des- uh, descends at the entrance of the tent. The people rise and they, they, they worship the Lord. Now, why is this passage here? Why is it inserted in the middle of uh, Moses's dialogue with the Lord? Well, it describes for us Moses' pattern of personal fellowship with the Lord. That's the keynote. Look at verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. So Moses, beloved, isn't just some kind of courier for God. He doesn't just deliver messages from on high. He had a personal, intimate walk with the Lord. The closing words of Deuteronomy say that there is not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So Moses, the Bible says, went into that tent to meet not just with his maker, not just with the covenant-keeping God, not even just with the great I am that I am, but with a friend. Can you imagine? I hope that you can, because you don't have to imagine. You know something of this if you are in Christ. You have a friend that sticks closer than a brother in the Lord Jesus You know something of that personal, intimate fellowship if you are in the Lord. This is the wonder of our God, that he is high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. His name is holy. He's transcendent. He dwells in the high and holy place. And also with him who is contrite and of lowly spirit, he is both transcendent and imminent. He's close. He's intimate with those who fear him. But there's also a glaring contrast here that you can't miss. And we're confronted with it in verse 7. It says that Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. Did you notice that? And so there is this striking juxtaposition between the, the, the intimacy that Moses enjoys and the separation that Israel experiences from the presence of the Lord. Moses possesses fellowship and nearness and relationship. Israel, on the other hand, their great sin has caused separation from the Lord. 
And so the text would seem to say to us, there's only one man who is truly in the right with the Lord. Not that he's not a sinner, not that Moses doesn't have a need, but the text sets him forth as one unique among men, one whom alone has access to the Lord and who can go between. He is a type of Christ. He is one that points the way forward to the Lord Jesus, by whom we have access to the Father, our representative, our mediator. Well, this brings us back to the matter at hand. It's the thought of Moses' constant communion with the Lord that brings us to verse 12. Uh, If you look there in your Bible, uh, you find Moses' response to that problem that we talked about back in verse 3, God's word that he will not go up with them. And Moses spells out the predicament in verse 12. Moses says to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, church, on one hand, Moses knows that while God has already said he will send his angel, beyond that, Moses says, you know what, Lord, the details are just too vague. The course here is far too foggy. On the other hand, he raises something to the Lord. He says, God, you say that I have found favor or grace, your Bible might say, in your sight. And it's on the basis of that, it's on the basis of that favor, that grace, that the Lord, or that Moses rather, petitions the Lord for two things. First in verse 13, he says this, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Now church, when Moses here says, Lord, show me your ways, he is not so much asking for a glimpse into the secret things of God. He's not asking for a master's level class in how God's, find, how God's will finds its outworking in the world. It's a whole lot grittier than that. Moses feels lost in the dark. Can you see it in the text? He does not understand what the Lord is doing in his life. He tells the Lord, you've said, bring this people up, but you're also saying that you won't go up with us. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand what you're doing, God. Can you identify with that? This isn't nearly so far removed from our lives as we might think it would be at first glance. Moses is indeed Israel's mediator, but when you strip everything away, he's just an ordinary man who can't quite make heads or tails out of the activity of God in his life. He cannot figure out what God is up to. So what does he do? He cries out to God. He calls on the name of the Lord. He lays his burdens and his confusion and his anxieties before the Lord, which raises another important point. He he casts his feelings 
of, of bewilderment and anxiety against this very important background. There's a very important truth embedded here that he has confidence that God can be trusted, that God does have a plan even when Moses can't understand what it is. Oh, that we might learn this. Moses knows already what Isaiah speaks about, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are his ways our ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Moses, in that way, entrusts himself to the Lord. He says, God, I'm pleading with you. I don't understand. I need your help. But at the end of the day, I know you're the only one I can run to. You're my only hope. So he runs into that strong tower. Now he goes on. In the second petition, he brings Israel before the Lord. He says, consider too that this nation is your people. He uses the favor, that grace that he has found in the sight of the Lord as leverage, if you will. He says, Lord, you have said, I know you, I know you, Moses, by name, and you have also found favor in your sight. Now, look upon your people. Moses knows that there's nothing he can point to in Israel to use as a basis for his plea. He cannot point to this um, stiff-necked nation and say, but God, they deserve a second chance. But God, what about this? Lord, think about all the great things that they can do for your namesake and your glory in the world. There's, there's nothing of that sort that he can point to in Israel. But Moses has the ear of the Lord. He's found favor with God. That again is not to say that Moses has any kind of personal merit of his own. He has found grace And it's that grace, it's his divine appointment as Israel's mediator that allows him to stand in the gap, that allows him to go in on behalf of the people of God. So again, we have a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage, a type of the one who was to come, a type of Christ who comes to stand in the gap between the Father and And man, not as a sinful man, not like Moses in that respect, but as the God-man, the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, the Father says of Christ, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And it is the favor and the protection of Jesus Christ that gives us today, this very day, a basis of appeal with the Father. It is Christ standing with the Father that gains our acceptance, that brings us near, that allows us to experience that that nearness that Moses enjoyed, that redounds to our everlasting joy, the everlasting glory of the Lord. Now what happens here as it relates to Moses in Israel's case? How does the Lord answer Moses' plea? If you look at verse 14, God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God heard Moses' plea. He answered the prayer and promised to go with them. And this is a massive advance on the situation 
before. There, there's just one problem that seems to be indicated in the text and that this is only a partial concession. The you here is, is singular. And probably this is pointing to, to Moses when, when it says, I will give you rest, that is singular. I will give you Moses. And probably that explains Moses' persistence in the next verse where he presses the point. He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. You see the tenacity of Moses. He has the audacity to say, God, you must go not just with me, but with your whole nation, all of your people. It's Moses' version of Jacob's prayer where he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me, or in this case, unless you bless us. Put your hand upon your people, O God. Moses would rather stay in the desert with God than to see Israel in an oasis without him. And that line of argument is sustained as we continue. He goes on, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? You see how he includes Israel again in his intercession. Now what I want you to see here, church, is that there is an underlying assumption in Moses' prayer. Do you see it? Moses assumes that in the economy of God, there is a greater purpose than Moses having found favor with the Lord. There is the public witness of that reality. In other words, Moses says, it's one thing for me to have found favor with you. It's one thing to inherit the promised land, but how are the nations going to know that these things have come from your hand unless your presence goes with us? The glory of God in the salvation of man is what he is getting at. It's an argument that is concerned with nothing less than the reputation of the name of God. He wants the world to see the name of God writ large across the work of God, that he might be thereby magnified, that the name of the Lord might be lifted up. He doesn't want the blessing to be placed upon these people and then have no one know about it. He wants the the name of God to sound forth throughout the the earth to the praise of God's glory. It's the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 where he talks about the saving work of Christ in our own lives. Ephesians 1 verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Paul says Christ died ultimately, for the praise of God's glory. Eternal life is ultimately to the praise of God's glory. The highest end of all God's redemptive work is the praise of God's glory. 
And that's the heartbeat, too, of Moses' intercession. He's saying, how will the grace that we have come to know be to the praise of your glory unless you go with us? Look at the second half of verse 16. Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? You see, it's contention. The very thing that makes Israel distinct from every other people on the face of the earth is that Yahweh dwells with them. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. God promised to draw near to his people, and we'll see the Lord's gracious condescension and his nearness and a renewed intimacy in the next chapter as as the covenant is renewed with Israel. We're not quite done with chapter 33. Moses is a man who, like the man in Luke chapter 11, uh, goes, you remember the, the man who goes knocking on his neighbor's door at, at midnight, and because of his impudence, uh, he, the neighbor gives him whatever he asks for. Moses is like that with the Lord, and you have to love that about him. Uh, verse 18 brings us to one of the most well-known prayers in the whole Bible. It's just five words long. Moses said, please. Show me your glory. Have you ever wondered what Moses was looking for when he prayed that prayer? Did he want to peer into the hidden things of God? Did he want a fuller picture of God's visible presence? He'd already encountered the Lord's visible presence back in Uh, Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush, and the Bible says there he was terrified, terrified even to look. A look, though, at Moses' history is illuminating. At at each critical point of his journey with the Lord, he does experience some kind of theophany, some sort of visible manifestation of God's presence and his power at the burning bush, at the bank of the Red Sea, at the top of Mount Sinai. Now he is at another waypoint in the journey, and as you can imagine, the challenges are daunting. The future is hard to see. Moses wants reassurance. He's not looking for some kind of mystical experience. He is not after some kind of ecstatic, spectacular vision. He wants hard, concrete reassurance that God is near. He wants to know he can count on the Lord, that the Lord is going to be with him, that God will lead and protect him. And God's response here is is just as illuminating. In response, the Lord does promise both visible and verbal revelation. Let me direct your attention to verse 19. The Lord says there, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me 
and live. So what happens when God reveals his glory? He speaks. God does promise to give Moses a visible manifestation of his presence to be sure. He tells Moses that he's going to hide him in the cleft of the rock and allow him to have some sense of his back. The Lord there accommodates himself to language that we can understand. Uh, Young people, children, the Lord does not have a body like man. God is spirit. God will manifest himself to Moses. He will give him some sense of his presence. But where does the text most direct our attention towards? It's the Lord's verbal self-revelation. The same is going to be true in chapter 34, where the Lord passes by Moses and proclaims his name and all that that entails. So in effect, the Lord's answer to Moses's prayer, show me your glory, is to say, Moses, there's something I want you to know, to understand, even more than, I, than, than, than to feel or to witness. No man can see God's glory and live in his unglorified state. And so God gives Moses, everything that he can stand, if you will. He causes all his goodness to pass before him. What does that mean? What does it mean for all the Lord's goodness to pass before Moses? Well, again, it is essentially to have the Lord's name and all that it represents proclaimed. The name of the Lord is synonymous with his person, his character, his attributes, his promises, his blessings, his benefits. The name of the Lord, Proverbs 18.10 says, is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Romans 10 verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord reminds Moses here that bound up in his name is his sovereign right to extend mercy to whomsoever he wills. Paul talks about this in Romans 9 where he deals with the doctrine of election. He uses Isaac and Rebekah's children as an illustration there, how before either of them had been born, before they'd done anything good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And Moses, or Paul rather, anticipates the question there. He says, what shall, then we, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, and he references our passage, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. If this wasn't the case and mercy could be demanded or earned or required in some way by the one to whom mercy is shown, it would no longer be mercy. It wouldn't be mercy. 
Now, church, the Lord's point in, in Exodus 33 doesn't seem to be so much to give a theological treatise on divine sovereignty, but to press upon Moses the stick-to-itiveness of the Lord's compassion and love for his people. It's the abundance of his mercy, the robustness of his grace that's in view. But again, notice this. The primary significance of the revelation that was given to Moses wasn't in what Moses saw. It was in what Moses heard. It was the word of God that he needed the most, that which would abide with him forever, not some fleeting manifestation of his glory. And so if you find yourself in Moses' shoes in some way today, and you think to yourself, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing. I don't understand your ways. God, if only the heavens would open up. If only you would show me your glory. If I could just lay my eyes on you, run to the word. Run to the word of Christ. Remember that God has already revealed himself in the word of God. He has already declared to you that he will never leave you or forsake you. Look to the word. Look to what it reveals of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his love for us. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable greatness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul here reminds the church that we have been brought into a relationship with God through a work of God's grace, something that does not hang on the obedience of sinful men. It cannot be broken by our own sinfulness. It's the new covenant. It's the new covenant in Christ's blood. That's our hope today. Let's go to him. Heavenly Father, you indeed are our only hope. You are all our hope and trust. Lord, we bless your name. We thank you for the confidence we find as we look to the same hope Moses looked to, your very word. Lord, we thank you for how it testifies of Christ, for how it convicts us of our sin and shows us our need Lord, I pray that you would work in us humble hearts, hearts that are ready to run from our idols and our sin, hearts that are eager to know you more, hearts that long to walk close to you. Lord, I pray that you would grant us the grace to trust you when we are afflicted and tried, when we don't understand what you're doing in our lives. Strengthen us, God. Strengthen our faith. 
even as we look to our eternal hope that there will be a day when Christ returns and we will see him as he is. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Lord, until then, may you be glorified in us. May your name be lifted high. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.